Hey, good morning, Hillcrest. Man, hey, thank you, Jack. Thank you, worship team. It is good to have you on the team. Got any insights already? You can share that with us uh, at some point. <laughs> All those insights. So I got, I got some, an insight for you. So some good news to report. Eden went to bed at about 11.30 and woke up at 7.30. Like, that's news that I'm not supposed to share, right? I'm supposed to keep those things to myself because that is not normal, right? Is that true? Well, my name is David. I love being one of the pastors around here if you're new with us. And just like Larry said, we had a great time ice fishing yesterday. Um, uh, Maybe fewer fish uh, than some were expecting, but that was okay with me. Provided me a great opportunity to go from ice fishing hole to ice fishing hole and have wonderful conversations. I mean, if we were catching fish, I'd be distracted from being able to have conversations. And so it was actually a great win for me. Uh, but we are jumping in and we're making a turn in Peter. So if you opened your Bibles to First Peter 2, Peter's making a turn here and... And so before we get into the text, I want to reflect a little bit on why we do what we do around here. And so this is probably a familiar graphic to some, but for me, always a good reminder of why we do what we do on a Sunday morning. And for us, it's predicated on the conviction that God exists, and the primary way He's chosen to reveal Himself is through a book uh, compiled from a variety of authors over a significant period of time. And we believe that book still has relevance for our lives two to four, 5,000 years later after those particular parts were written. And that God inspired these very words. And he did it through ordinary guys like the guy that wrote this letter to these first century Christians, Peter. And Peter wrote these words that 2,000 years ago still have relevance because there's a transcendent God working in and through that. And that we find ourselves on this side of it anchored to this conviction that God spoke through his word. And, and I think it's an absolute gift that we get together and, and there's an illumination process that's working, that the Spirit is revealing ideas Just like you heard in that song, God three in one, the Holy Spirit living in us, those by faith who have accepted Jesus, illuminating these ideas. But I I, I know there's a a jump though, and and it's a a common illustration, I'll say it again because it strikes me every time, that Kathy, Kathy knows Casey, and, and Kathy could tell me she knows Casey and would say, hey David, you know Casey loves you, right? been married 11 years, and and I would say, yeah, I believe that case. I believe that Casey loves me. But how much more if I actually moved one more step and could hear from Casey from herself, David, I love you, means all the difference in the world. I love that you guys allow me the privilege to collectively hear from God through his word throughout the week and then share on a Sunday as we gather to do this collectively. But our conviction, our commitment is to try and continue to move us so that we are first-handers hearing from God for ourselves that he loves us. And so with Peter, I, I, want, I don't want to miss the forest for the trees. 
So we're going to go back and just do a brief overview of where Peter has been thus far in his letter to us. Um, you guys ever play like a game and, you know, you get so consumed in the game that you forget? Jeff, go for it. Jeff's like, yes, I get so consumed in the details of the game that I forget what's actually happening. Risk. Risk. Oh, man, you're just in it. You're just in it in those dice rolls. And then all of a sudden, the person wins. Fred shared about this on Ticket to Ride a few weeks ago, where he was so consumed, and all of a sudden, he's lost sight of the bigger picture. I hope for us, we go week by week looking at a section, but we never want to miss the fuller picture of where Peter's been taking us, because he's about to make a turn after verse 10 into the rest of his letter. But here's where he's been. If we look back, we can see in that first part of Peter, he just was overwhelmed with this praise. He, he had those first few verses where he was speaking to his audience, those elect exiles. And then for about nine, ten verses, he just erupted in praise about the salvation that existed in the past, the present, and also future salvation. And then he shifts gears and he gives us about five imperatives, four or five imperatives, depending on how you read it. And he says, be hopeful. He commands us, be hopeful in that salvation and to be holy. Be holy as the God you're following is holy and be afraid. Be afraid of not being hopeful. And then love others. Kind of dials in that holiness a little bit more specifically and says there's a love that ought to overflow out of your life. And then love the word like newborn infants crave milk long for the word. And I, I don't know about you, was there one of those five, don't answer this rhetorical, but in your head, was there one of those fives that just struck you Was Peter was encouraging us in those different ideas? And then the past few weeks, we focus now on the living stone and how we are being built up in this spiritual house to treasure Jesus together as living stones. And now he's concluding that section where last week we got to see the preciousness of Jesus. Brian told us about Jesus as the cornerstone, and now Peter is pressing in to what it means to be this spiritual house a little bit more fully and the purpose contained there. So here's the text. You guys ready to jump in? You guys ready to, to, to bend your neck a little bit to read these words up here with me? As you come to him, so we're going to read verse 4 to 10, but then we're just going to land in verse 9 and 10 this morning. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. And so verse 4 and 5 act as kind of the title section. Verse 4 relating to verse 6 to 8. And then verse 5 is going to get developed this morning. So for it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. You cannot thwart God's plan, as Brian shared with us last week. But you... But you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a special people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
If you notice in verse 9, right off the bat, here's our big idea. He's going to tell us there is something special about those who delight in God. For those that delight in Jesus, there is a specialness that comes with you. And, and those that find their delight and their specialness in God can't help but overflow in seeking transformation of those around them. That there is this powerful purpose that's embedded in those that have been chosen and special before God. So, you guys ready to dive in? Let's do it. And th- okay, so just me, I guess. I'm, I'm alone in that. Are we ready to dive in, Jill? We are ready. Thank you. Jill and I are ready. All right. Pray with me as we jump in. God, you're so good. Uh, what, what a gift to anchor ourselves in your word consistently week in, week out, believing there is still immense relevance for our lives in the day to day. Help us see you a little bit more fully and what that looks like on, on that beautiful specialness that you have for us. And what it means then for our purpose in overflowing that from our lives. Thank you, Jesus, for your glory we pray. Amen. Amen. So as always, I love a map of where we're headed. And so it feels like this text has two primary ideas embedded into it. That one, that we are a part of a community that has this exclusive relationship with God. And that as a result of this being in this community, we have the most meaningful purpose that could ever take place. Namely, living so that others might enjoy the excellencies of God. So the first one, we are part of this community that has an exclusive relationship with God. Here's how Peter is saying it in verse 9 and 10. But you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And so we're asking why. Peter, what are you trying to tell us by stringing those four ideas together? What's the purpose? What are you trying to communicate to us about our role, our relationship with God. And and so what I think he's going to build into is this idea of how special it is to be a part of that relationship with God. And and so what obviously comes to your mind when you hear those four ideas is the greatest showman of God. I mean, it's so obvious. I mean, it's such an obvious connection that those those go together. Um, Greatest showman, anybody? What's like one of the best songs in Greatest Showman, Betsabe? Um, the first one, This is the Greatest Show. This is the Greatest Show. <laughs> That's all I got. That's all I got. So, so we, we came home from a birthday dinner. So it was my birthday this past week in case you took me out to Longhorn, uh, the Longhorn Steakhouse. Sound familiar? Right? And, and so do you go like bone in or no bone in your steaks? What's the, what's bone in always? always, right? So you can kind of chew on the grizzle a little bit right after the, just me on that. Okay, Jessica, just me. And and so we go to Longhorn Steakhouse and we have another little guest with us. So Eden comes along. And when we get home, our babysitters are watching The Greatest Showman. And and so I was reflecting on this this message this week. Um, There's a scene in The Greatest Showman that I think speaks to what Peter is trying to communicate to us about our identity. He says, the fundamental idea is that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession. And it feels like there's a question that gets raised up when we start thinking about our identity. And the question is, 
Am I enough? In The Greatest Showman, there's a scene where Hugh Jackman's character goes to talk to his future wife's father, right? His future father-in-law, and he says to him, and she's never going to stick with you. You're never going to be enough, and she's going to come back home. And so it felt like for the whole movie, you see Hugh Jackman's character, B.T. Barnum, trying to prove that he is enough and relentlessly pursuing all the opportunities to show that he's enough, even so much that there's a scene with he and his wife where she goes, what are you doing? (laughs) You don't need to be doing this because why? Because I'm here, right? You are enough. Your family ought to be enough. And he says it's not, right? And he keeps charging. Feels like there's this question that Peter's trying to answer. Are we enough? Men, in our vocations, when we're, when we're growing our desire for our vocations or in our families, Facebook and Instagram constantly presenting me with pictures that I'm just not enough. My family's not as whole or perfect as them as they posture themselves. And Peter tries to communicate the fundamental characteristics of our identity in Jesus. And these are the four ideas he tries to tell us to these elect exiles that are scattered over the dispersia who are this minority community. And he's telling them, you're special. And here's the words he chooses to communicate that. He says, you're a chosen race, that you were selected by God. And by race, what does he mean? He says, but you, you are a chosen race. What does he mean by race? Is there something about your whiteness or your blackness that that defines who you are? No, instead, Christianity eradicates racism because it's trying to have our identity anchored in this conviction of Jesus as the cornerstone. Here's what Paul says in Ephesians about this reconciliation that happens to the chosen race of a believer, of the race of being a follower of Jesus. Here's what Paul says in Ephesians 2, a long text, but bear with it. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, no longer based upon ethnicity, but rather one in Christ by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new race, one new race in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so that you are no longer strangers and aliens, second-class citizens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure is joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That we are in this incredible, incredible, unique, special relationship. And the language he uses to communicate to his readers is steeped in this Israel language. You are chosen race. 
Not because of some bloodline, but rather by your faith. You are special in this chosen race and a royal priesthood. Again, Israelite language, why? To communicate, you no longer need someone to give you access to God. We can approach God directly. Here's what he says, right? But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. He's trying to share this specialness of their identity. Feeling marginalized, feeling disconnected. And he's saying, do you know how special you are? Do you know that any moment of any day you can directly access the God of the universe? What a concept. Do you know how special you are? Third idea he communicates. That you're a chosen race selected by God, a royal priesthood with access to him at any point, and that you are a holy nation set apart to enjoy God, right? He just keeps building, but you, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, because sometimes it feels like we need to hear that in Western Christianity, where we feel like it's us as an individual on an island following Jesus in isolation by ourselves. Instead, he's hearkening back to this language of that Israelite nation and saying, you, you guys are a holy nation. You guys get to collectively enjoy God. Because what it feels like is, I like being off of my own island, doing my own thing. A phrase that I sometimes hear is, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. And those feel like non, those can't be mutual, mutually distinct ideas. In the, midst, uh, in the midst of the church, right, there's hurt sometimes. It's like, oh, it's messy. Dealing with siblings is tough. And yet, this is the way God designed it to work in this holy nation where we set apart to enjoy him. And then fourth, the way he communicates that specialness, he says, you're his possession, that we are treasured by God. In your identity, do you know how special you are to him? But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And so it doesn't mean we always feel this, right? But Peter's trying to tell this disenfranchised community across Asia Minor of just how special they are. And I thought, how do you communicate? How do you communicate that special possession? And so the only thing I could think of was these little babies and how they're a treasured possession for me. Uh, someday I know my girls will be driving, and I'm sure in the Wisconsin weather they're going to find themselves in a ditch someday. <laughs> it's just inevitable, right? Or, or it's going to be like minus 10, and there's going to be a flat tire, and they're going to call Dad, and, and they're going to say, Hey, Dad, can you come change our tire? I mean, they are my treasured possession, uh, treasured by me, and, I, and I'll do it. If Jeff calls me and he's in a ditch somewhere, I might say, hey, we need to call AAA, Jeff. We, I'm not coming out there. It's cold. I'm staying inside, but I'll call you AAA. But this treasured possession, Peter's trying to say, do you know how special you are to God? That you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and his possession. And there's a turn coming in the book. Because what it feels like sometimes is, is we want to live this thing in isolation, yeah, I, I follow Jesus, David. It's why I love getting back together, right? No rush to those people online, but why I love being back in community, in women's Bible studies and life groups. There's a value of not doing this in isolation, that we actually link up and build community in this pursuit of Jesus. But even then, sometimes what happens is that specialness could feel like it becomes this holy huddle. And so 
what Peter now transitions into is you're special with a purpose. You're special for the most meaningful purpose in existence. You're trying to figure out, am I enough? You are so special that you actually have a purpose you're released to. Here's what he says, but you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. There's this incredible purpose for those that are special in God's eyes. And so it's not just these two in a holy huddle. Actually, what we believe is the accurate view of life as a disciple around here at Hillcrest is that third component of seeking transformation of those around us. That's what we mean by life with Jesus, a life of a disciple. And so that second, that we are part of this community, for what purpose? That we are part of a community that has the most meaningful purpose anyone could ever have living so that others might enjoy the excellencies of God. And so even when you hear that phrase, were you hit by something just in that moment? Maybe there's this guilt that accompanies that language where it feels like this obligation that, that just was overwhelming for you where you go, I, I, get that, I get that I'm special so that you can share about these excellencies. And growing up in the church for me, sometimes it, it almost feels like a weapon uh, of, of giving and evangelism. I feel like these weapons that are weighed and guilted upon me Rather, what Peter's trying to say is there's this overwhelming joy that flows out of those with this special relationship. So here's how he goes into this next section. But you, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And I think there's three ideas contained within this second section. So first... um, Have you ever met somebody that, that tells you how good they are? You ever come across someone like that? Someone in your life, you're like, man, can that guy stop talking about how good he is? You ever come, you ever come across someone like that? So when we put something above God, what's that called? Idolatry, Right? That now you're elevating something above God. Something has elevated to to be above God. Here's the question in these next few verses. What would happen if God put something above himself? What would that be? Idolatry. So what we're going to see here is maybe something that makes us uncomfortable if someone did it for themselves. And told everyone else how good they were. But for God to do anything other than that. Actually contrary to the very nature of what it means to be God. Here's what he says. For the Lord will not forsake his people. Why? God is committed to the specialness of his people. Why? I know it's kind of high up there. And kind of you got to crick your neck. Why? Why won't God compromise on the specialness in taking care of his people? Why? For his great name's sake, 
for his great namesake. God is not willing to compromise on his fame, the fame of his name. It has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. And I love this from Psalm 79. Crying out for God to act for our behalf? Yes. But even higher than that, why? Help us, O God, of our salvation for the glory of your name. Act for the recognition and fame and purpose of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. So Peter's now writing to a community and saying the most meaningful purpose for your lives is actually to live. You're so special, you get to live to declare the excellencies of how good I am. That's, that's why you get to live. The Westminster Catechism says it like this, and I love the, the, the brevity. The chief end of man. What is the purpose of all mankind? They say this, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So Peter now says this. You are so special, you get to be part of a community that has the most meaningful purpose ever to exist so that you declare the excellencies of God. And I think Peter breaks it apart in three ideas. That first, God has excellencies worth communicating about. Here's what he says. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possessions, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. And what specific excellency is Peter talking about? That you are called from darkness into his marvelous light. And so I don't know about you, you read those words, darkness and light. So what was it? Like the lights are off? Like what is that darkness that we were called out of? And I think he describes that in verse 1, chapter 1, 14 and 18 in these ways. What is that darkness? What, what is that excellency that God gets credit for doing? As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, your former darkness that you were in. Knowing you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, those feudal ways, that darkness. You guys ever heard of the show 24? So I am on like a throwback kick right now. Because what did I talk about a few weeks ago? Survivor. Oh man, what a show. I'm like 20 years late to that party. Does anybody know when 24 came out? That's another throwback. And you know it's like our segments that are supposed to be like literal hours from the day. I'm like, someone, someone gets kidnapped, rescued, someone, it's like all happens within an hour. I'm like, how many things can happen within an hour? But in 24, it's just wonderful. Anyway, here's the challenge. Walking in darkness isn't always the licentious lifestyle. Walking in darkness is sometimes the futility of my mind believing that there's more significance to be found in apple pie and Netflix. And the bane existence of just the triviality of life that gets wasted away, Satan is a marketing genius. Saying that these other things in life are going to provide significance. Wrestling with the identity question of, am I enough? Did I work hard enough today? And did I prove myself enough today to others? The fracturing of relationships. The futility of my mind walking in darkness saying this relationship is going to satisfy me. And jumping to this guy or this girl is going to bring significance to my life. 
And Peter's saying the excellencies of God are when someone is transformed from darkness of walking in the futility of their mind to light, building their life on this cornerstone that Jesus is the most precious, that you've been transformed. And then he quotes something in, in, in verse 10 that fascinates me. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies. God has excellencies that are worth proclaiming, that you were called out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then he says this, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. There was a time when you were in darkness and you were not worthy of receiving mercy. And now you've been brought to light where God's mercy has shined on you apart from anything you did. But Peter does something interesting here. You guys ever heard of a book called Hosea? So Hosea, kind of this word picture of Israel, making some poor choices. And Hosea uh, has a relationship and there's kids born out of wedlock to demonstrate the way God is dealing with his people. And, And so Hosea is given the names of what he's supposed to name his kids by God. Here's what God tells him about naming his kids in Hosea 1. So she conceived again and bore. I'm thinking, yeah, I just named a kid recently, New Year's Eve, right? So Eden, Eden Hope, right? And, and Dari Joy and Mari Grace and Hudson Arturo. So, so uh, names, names are a beautiful thing. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, to Hosea, call her name, No Mercy. <laughs> For I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all, but I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will, I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. And then he's got another kid coming. What do you think he names that kid? Verse 8, when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Because you're living and walking in darkness. And so, God is worthy of proclaiming his excellencies. Why? Because he's called you out of darkness into light. And Peter picks up on this Old Testament theme of what God said to these Israelite people that you will not receive mercy. That you are making choices and walking in darkness and my wrath is still upon you. And you are not my people. You are in darkness and the futility of your mind, choosing other things above me. You don't find me precious at all. So you are not my people, and I will not show you mercy. But then this beautiful switch happens where he says, that was once true of you, but now you are special to me because you have been transformed. You are receiving mercy, and you are my people. God has excellencies that are worth declaring at the most fundamental level of that transformation. And then he continues. If you've experienced that, guess what you do? Those that have experienced his excellencies, man, you want to talk about it. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. That, that if you've been transformed, you want to share about this. So Tyler showed up to the, uh, to the ice fishing, uh, men's ice fishing thing yesterday. And, and can anyone guess what kind of beanie he had on? He had a Vikings beanie on. I mean, you just can't contain the love for the Minnesota Vikings. You just want to share about it. And, and there's a common sh- heart that Tyler and I have that we just go, ah, well, 
better luck next year, right? We, we are anchored in this hope that, well, Vikings might do better next year. You know, if I go over to Fred's house, Fred can't help but want to talk about some of the woodworking things he's been working on in his unhurried life with God. It just overflows and cascades out of him. You know, one of the questions I love asking people, and Phil, Phil was trying to manage the camera last time. Tim, you're back there on your own. Good luck. What's the one thing I love asking people when you meet them? What do you love to do? Because we can't help but talk about the things we love. It just overflows. You, you don't got to guilt me and twist my arm. Man, you, you want to talk about Vasilius and ice fishing? He will talk about ice fishing, right? He's going to talk about all the intricacies of what it looks like to actually ice fish. And I'm just happy to sit there and enjoy uh, uh, trying to stay warm with the little hand warmers. So I, I bought those sole warmers. So I was wearing two sole warmers and I flipped on a couple of like body heating packs too. Oh man, it was wild. I never thought in my life I never thought in my life, it's what right now? It's 27 degrees. I never thought in my life I'd be saying about 27 degree weather, man, it is just a heat wave out here. I never thought that'd be true. But I can't help but share about it. Peter's saying, if you've experienced this radical transformation, you proclaim the excellencies. That's how special you are. But here's the challenge for me. We don't always feel that. And so I want to share three ideas that I hope are our statements of what it means when we talk about this overflow and cascade of sharing the excellencies. So, so here's, here's our hope. Here's what we're convinced around here at Hillcrest, that, that these ideas are, are true for us, that we will see evangelism as what happens whenever the love of Jesus inevitably flows out of us for those who have received it to those who desperately need it. It's not this event that I show up to and that's evangelism. Evangelism isn't for the pros. Like, man, that's why we pay you, David. Evangelism isn't this thing where I go, well, I give money. I drop a couple bucks to our global partner so they can do evangelism. No, instead, we're going to see it as just an overflow of those who have received this transformation to proclaim his excellencies. It just is something that flows out of us one life at a time. And two... We're not viewing this as someone as our project, right? Instead, God views them as individuals created in his image, and we want to see people that way as well, for whom he sacrificed his son so that they might be forgiven of their sins. That's what we're talking about when we talk about proclaiming the excellencies of him who has called us from darkness into his marvelous light. And third, and this is a metaphor I hope we've heard around here, that we will always regard ourselves as grateful beggars who have found food who in our joy can't help but share Jesus with others. There's this, there's this desire that says, I think I found something and I want to share it with those around me. So we have the most meaningful purpose. Why? Because God actually has excellencies worth declaring that to those who have experienced it can't help but overflow and share. And then that proclaiming his excellencies actually takes various forms. So here's what Peter was saying back in the text. But you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You are special. And what is the beautiful, special nature you get to express? You get to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you receive mercy. And that proclamation of his excellencies takes various forms. So what might that look like? 
How might we proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us from darkness in his marvelous light? So it feels like there's a shift that's happened culturally. And I don't know, 50, 60 years ago, there was a, a much more, or there was a greater expectation that someone is waiting to hear this good news, but for someone to share it with. If I just came with some kind of material, a track, if I just came with some kind of document, if I, if I just had the right answers, then I could say, hey, do you know the wages of sin is death? It's true, right? There's sin that, that separates me from God, and, and there's death in that. The darkness, the futility of our minds. And, and, that, and that, is, that is a dangerous place to stay, separated from God. And, and there's a place of uh, a lack of heart and a lack of hope. But God offers this free gift of eternal life in his son that, that through him we could spend eternity. And if you would simply believe in Jesus and cross over, you could experience this new life in him. It feels like that may have been true 50, 60 years ago where there was a greater biblical literacy that existed. What might it look like to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us from darkness into light? feels like we got to back up one step. And there's actually another bridge that needs to be crossed over. Because what feels like the greatest uh, limitation for some to follow Jesus, in my mind, is sometimes his followers and that Christian subculture. And so there, in my mind, in order to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you, there's actually about a few steps before you can actually proclaim those excellencies as purely as that. It's actually building trust. What would it look like for those in our sphere of influence to know a Christian they can trust? What would it look like for someone in your sphere to actually know you're a follower of Jesus and that they can trust you? Not even get to this beautiful message of the gospel, but actually just trust you. What would it look like to build genuine trust in a genuine relationship? And then, I think the inevitable next step of that is actually a curiosity that's peaked. That building trust actually leads to a curiosity about life that may lead to someone asking a question going, David, I don't understand this. To which I hope I can reply as well, I don't know. I don't know either. Let's, let's discover together. Let's journey together and, and actually build that curiosity of what it would look like to explore proclaiming the excellencies of him who called you from darkness into light. And then uh, I think there's an openness, this change, this openness to change. Change is hard, right? Man, change is hard. Switching from the Ford Flex to the Honda, I wasn't sure I was ready for the minivan life. Change is hard. But then once you experience doors that just automatically open and kids not smashing doors into your, your cars that parked around side you, there's an openness to change. Man, the futility of our minds and sitting in darkness and we go in, there's, there can't be, this, there's, there's got to be something better than this. But getting to that point of building trust and curiosity that leads to the openness of change saying, I'm willing to explore something else that actually leads in my mind to seeking. There's got to be a better way that then, for me, leads into that following 
Jesus. Proclaiming his excellencies. That we are part of a community that has this exclusive relationship with God, this specialness that can't help but lead to the most meaningful purpose. So I, I got a few takeaways, maybe a little different than how we've done them. The first, uh, with whom are you building trust? With whom might you be praying and watching for God to do a work in their life? Not because of how good you are, but because of the work God has done. With whom are you building trust? And then I want to end with our mission and vision statement and the three lifestyles that I think flow out of our statement. That we want to be a people helping people. That we want to be a community of living stones. We want to be a royal priesthood, a holy nation, this specialness of God that can't help but want to find, help others find life with Jesus one life at a time. We think that's made up of three primary lifestyles of following Jesus in the most, uh, most awe-inspiring, ever-deepening relationship with God. And that we can't do that alone. Instead, we build community with others on this journey. And that it leads us to seek transformation of those yet to believe. And, and you see the positive in that, right? I'm a half-glass full guy. Man, the, the, the hope that God is doing a work in those that have yet to actually find fulfillment, yet to come to this marvelous light. So... I don't know which one of those three might be pulling on your heart. I don't know for you if, if it's that first circle of an ever-increasing journey with Jesus. And maybe the encouragement is to just go back and read 1 Peter 1 and 2. And to hear the words of what God is speaking to Peter and about your identity. Maybe it's finding Jesus precious and wrestling with the futility of the darkness of our minds. Maybe it's jumping in a community. There's short-term groups, long-term groups, organic, reaching out to someone in your life and saying, I, I just don't want to do this journey with Jesus alone. And maybe that's what you need to be hit with this morning, that there's, a, there's an atrophied muscle of building community where you feel like you've been doing this alone. And it's an opportunity for you to step into to more and deeper community, whether that's organized around here in women's Bible studies or short-term groups or life group, or more organically reaching out to a friend and just saying, I don't want to do this alone. Or third, maybe it's seeking transformation, building relationships, genuine relationships so that someone in your sphere says, I can trust the Christian because that muscle maybe has been atrophied. For us, Peter's making a turn now in his letter. He's now going to spend the remainder of his letter pressing us on these three lifestyles of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So pray with me as we, as we welcome up the worship team. God, you're so good. Thank you for the gift of studying your word together, the gift of wrestling through who you are and the truth of who you are with others. Uh, help us continue to find our satisfaction to build our life on you, our cornerstone. Thank you, Jesus, always for your glory, we pray. Amen.